Welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So today we are broadcasting in full in-person luxury from my parents' house in Scotland, where Morgan is visiting for a very fast trip. And we are here to talk about Nightwatch by Terry Pratchett, um, our latest and kind of first proper book club episode. We've done a couple of books in the past, um, but this time we kind of read along and tweeted along and did some Patreon blogs and so forth. And yeah, Morgan, this is your first Terry Pratchett experience, apart from Good Omens. It was. Uh, and I enjoyed it. I did not love it. I think you... I know that you love this a great deal more than I did. <laughs> so I think you're going to be doing most of the talking in this episode, although I definitely did like it. I think that reading this without the background of the other uh, Discworld books definitely puts you at somewhat of a disadvantage. I said this in one of the blog posts. It's not so much an issue of uh, not being able to follow what's going on, because it's pretty easy to jump in context-wise, but emotionally, you're not as invested in the characters. Whereas if you've read a bunch of books about these people leading up to this book, obviously, or at least about the protagonist leading up to this book, you have a certain level of investment in him and understanding of yeah. all the background. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's a it's a bit of a like sticky situation because um, with the Discworld books, they're basically designed so you can drop in at any point, which is part of the reason why they've been such consistent bestsellers because like you don't really need to be really meticulous. And I definitely read them out of order when I read all of them as a teenager, but this one is both, in my opinion, the best or at least my favourite. And like the most, one of the most interesting to talk about, but also is like one of the most sequential because it comes at the end of, you know, there's several kind of story strands at different like locations in the Discworld in the series, but this one is at like the kind of the the end section of like one particular character's storyline. And while there's other kind of, there's other like little sub-franchises like the Witches books and so on, these are the ones that like have the most serialized storytelling. So I guess, like, for the listeners who listen to us without actually consuming the source material, um, first of all, I love you, because who does that? Um, (laughs) But, like, um, I think I'll just give, like, a little kind of intro to what this book is about and kind of the background. Um, Obviously, the Discworld is a sort of satirical fantasy universe where it's just a a flat world with various classic fantasy locations on it with, like, dwarves and trolls and so on. And um, the Watch books are kind of crime novels. They're not structured like crime or mystery novels, but they are about the police force in this kind of semi-historical city called Ankh-Morpork, which is mostly humans, but there's a bunch of other magical creatures. Um, And they're sort of comedic fantasy stories where the main watch character is this guy named Sam Vimes, who starts the series as this miserable alcoholic leader of like a very incompetent police force where the Watch basically barely do any crime fighting. There's only a handful of them. They're the laughing stock of the city and he's really inefficient. And like through the series, he kind of cleans up his act. He starts to understand city politics better. Um, he is like this sort of, he's not like a revolutionary figure in that he is um, particularly idealistic. He's very cynical, but he becomes this sort of role model to a lot of other characters because he is just like, has this very strong sense of justice. So he'll go around like 
you know, arresting really important politicians because he thinks it's the right thing. And then people will be like, wow, it's really impressive. And he'll just be like, what are you talking about? I just did like <laughs> the right thing. And um, this book kind of comes at like the pinnacle of his career where it kind of starts off where he is the commander of the watch. He's been made a duke in the last book. He's happily married and his wife is about to give birth. And what happens is while he's chasing after this uh, serial murderer called Carcer, who's just this absolute like monstrous psychopath, um, they both fall into a time warp <laughs> and are sent back 30 years into the past, um, which is a period we've never seen before in the Pratchett books. It's like before Ankh-Morpork's current leader was in charge, so the city is really chaotic and corrupt. Um, Vimes himself, like his younger counterpart, is like 20 and is like basically his first week on the job at the watch. And um, Vimes gets caught up in the revolution that led to the current corrupt patrician of the city being deposed and then replaced by another soon to be very also corrupt patrician. Um, And it's sort of like the idea is that this revolution seems like this huge life-changing moment for all the people who are living in it. But Vimes, with like the eye of history, knows that absolutely nothing is going to change until they actually get like a decent functional leader. And it's kind of about him living through his own history and trying to get back home. It's also like a very obvious parody of Les Mis. This did not occur to me while reading it. So why don't you explain a little okay. further about the Les Mis situation? It was, it was so fun for me to read this. Like, now I know Les Mis. Because when I initially read this, I must have been like 14 or something. Um, and I loved it. And I love it every time I reread it. But in like the intervening years since the last time I read it, I've got into Les Mis. I've only read like a third of the book. But I, I love the musical and the fandom. And I've, I've sung in a very shitty anim- amateur version of the musical <laughs> with my friends that we all put on together. Uh, <laughs> but like, um, there was a lot of kind of allusions in this book. Obviously, it's set around like an urban revolution that is kind of modelled off a lot of these early, mid-19th century revolutions. Because there was this period when like every central and western European country had its own little mini revolution and they all went like very similarly and it didn't always like sort out anything at all. A lot of barricades, a lot of students, a lot of, you know, machinations behind the scenes that result in another like shit politician taking charge and then they'll all kill the biggest revolutionary and be like, oh, well done, we succeeded. But um, in terms of the layman stuff, like the main two characters here, Vimes and Carcer, the criminal, are like a reverse Jean Valjean and Javert. So you've got like this justice-obsessed police officer who's like, he has like, his main interest is just like single-minded obsession with getting his man um, to the point where like he keeps feeling guilty because he keeps forgetting his wife because he's like too busy trying to fight crime or whatever. And then Carcer at one point makes a joke where he's like, I, all I did was steal a loaf of bread. And Vimes is like, no, you like murdered a lot of people. <laughs> so he's like the evil, evil shetty Jean Valjean. And then you've got all of these revolutionary characters on the barricades who are sort of like a parody of these the the students. There's this character who in the later books becomes a zombie but this is the book where he dies and he's like this very over the top. He wears a frilly shirt and a sash. He like really wants there to be a People's Republic of Ankh-Morpork and he's always like trying to get his communist ideals but he's always running into problems because everyone else there is just like a regular person who has selfish petty concerns and it's just like (laughs) illustrating how these things very quickly fall apart because no one can actually live up to the ideals of the revolution. So he's like the Anjaras figure because there was never any romance or heroism in Terry Pratchett books. They're always very like human nature is actually absurd and stupid because they're very British and self-deprecating. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everything with that character was very amusing because every time he tries to say anything idealistic, just like, literally no one listens to him. 
And so he's just sort of wandering around, like, saying these things and just being ignored. I was like, oh. He's, like, trying to explain redistribution and, like, seizing the means of production to this guy who just, like, owns a cobbler's shop. And he's like, but do my shirts still belong to me? (laughs) (laughs) And it's not like Pratchett's against this stuff. I think, like, his politics are always very clear in his books, but he also has, like, a realistic idea of how people will actually respond to this. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's sort of... And the politics, I think, are kind of interestingly ambivalent, actually. Mm. Not that he's not, like, left, because clearly he is. But it's, it is it is sort of because he's so keenly aware of human nature, which, as we have all seen recently, is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that he's massively pessimistic about people either, but he's sort of just like, well, people aren't going to necessarily behave in the best way and a lot of the way that people behave in this book is just like in a fundamentally selfish way not in not in a way that's selfish in a awful way like they're not it's not like really gritty yeah but people are fundamentally self-interested which i think is basically true especially if you leave them to their own devices and i'm just like not interested in like large ideological issues and some of the characters in this book are not just this one revolutionary like vimes the protagonist clearly is like very aware of all these larger issues but a lot of the other characters are just like i do not care about this like please leave me alone and what winds up happening essentially is that like they create this kind of secondary city within the city that is just functioning normally without the government which is a very libertarian approach to the world which i thought was kind of interesting but i think kind of the idea is that they're also aware that there's no way for that to continue long term because like the idea is like they've barricaded off so much of the city that they essentially like control most of the city so like all of the kind of ox carts that are bringing supplies in from the countryside are still coming because like it doesn't necessarily matter who the president is for like a week which is true but then it's like the longer term that lasts on the more it's like the city will collapse Right, but the if the whole idea is that the government is fundamentally and perpetually corrupt, mm. then everyone just has to kind of deal with it. Yeah. Which is sort of like, well, that's relatable. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> like, like, well, this is the thing, cause it's like, um, when you've read, like, the other, the other Ankh-Morp Bork books, like, this one seems like more of a contrast, because, like, at the beginning of the, ter- at the beginning of the series, like, in the Discord books, they did have one of, like, these older patricians, and I think it was just non-specific, because he hadn't thought that long ahead yet, but the city was much more corrupt, and then as you get further on, and he introduces Veterinary, who's, like, this sort of Machiavellian genius who revamps the city and makes it much more sort of civilised, then you do start to see the contrast, so with this, it's like, you actually do see that Veterinary's government isn't corrupt, but also he doesn't really have a rosy view where it's like, oh, here's this great guy because he's intentionally created this person who he's a tyrant. But instead of being like, I love to oppress people, he's like, I love authoritarian control. But like the only person who can do that efficiently is like a character that's fictional. Because in real life, when there's stuff like, oh, it's great that authoritarians make the trains run on time. It's like they literally don't. <laughs> so it's like he's created this imaginary benevolent tyrant who's this Sherlock Holmes genius who just views the city like a clockwork and sees Vimes as like a tool in his toolkit and this sort of thing. So he's like the most fantastical character like out of all of them because everyone else in these books is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of idiots, which is entertaining. 
And not in a particularly nefarious way. They're just kind of dumb. Yeah. Which, again, is true to life because there are a lot of idiots out there. Yeah. Well, like, one of the things I was saying in the Patreon post is, like, this is very British humor in a similar vein to Douglas Adams. Because, like, the characters in these books are, like, so relentlessly embarrassing. Like, every single one of these books, almost every character is just, like, they're stupid or they just, like, don't understand what's going on or they're, like, just intrinsically embarrassing and uncool people. And that is definitely the case here, but it's, like, because Vimes is, like, at the end of his story arc, he's kind of earned the point where he actually is, like, this really cool protagonist hero, which is, like, meant that Morgan and I have very different viewpoints of him as a character because I've seen him make his way up from Trash Man and I'm like, well done! You deserve (laughs) to have a book where you're, like, really cool and everyone looks up to you and you're just like, well, you know... (laughs) This seems like a bit of a man protagonist. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't find him aggravating exactly in the sense that it was like, ugh, a man. But it was more because he doesn't act superior really in that way. But without having that background, it's more just like, here's this incredibly competent person who does everything right basically the whole book. I was like, okay, <laughs> that's nice, but there's not a great deal yeah. of conflict in that sense because it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that he's going to do the right thing in basically every situation. And I don't even necessarily mean the right thing morally, although he is pretty much a moral person, but just like the right thing in a practical sense. Like he yeah. knows what to do all the time. And yeah that isn't always the most suspenseful thing in a plot sense because there's no, like, obviously there is conflict in this book, but it's, there's not a, and like, he's sort of racing against the clock to try to sort of fix this situation and obviously to get back home, as you said, but because he is so good at everything, I was never really that concerned about like the outcome. And also it would be pretty bleak to just be like, yep, you're never getting home and you never met your <laughs> wife and your kid doesn't exist. So you kind of know yeah. what's going to happen ultimately. And I, you know, I haven't read any of the stuff with his wife or whatever. So all that is abstract if this is the only book you've read. So it's sort of like, yeah. well, the wife, which who I assume is like a character. Yeah. In other she's books. like a, she's a, middle-aged, outdoorsy duchess. So, like, when they fall in love, he's just this, like, absolute ragamuffin. And she's this very business-like kind of lady who, you can imagine the type. Yes. Instead of being oh, yes. like, oh, I collect horses, she collects dragons. So she's bald and wears a very impressive rich person wig all the time because the <laughs> dragons have burned off her hair. So she's a great character. She's very, she's very nice and sensible. And he's just sort of like, goodness. I don't know what's happening here, but I'm into it. Like, <laughs> not used to people finding him attractive, which like is also happens in this book in like a really, like a really entertaining way. Because in this book, there's a point where he's like accosted by this woman who's like in the kind of the the revolutionaries. There's like the street level revolutionaries who are just like idiots, and then there is like the machinations that are going on behind the scenes, which are kind of led by this woman named um, Lady Meserol, um, and she is this, like, posh, very intelligent person who's great at, like, manipulating aristocrats. And she's the one who's making everything happen behind the scenes. And the kind of the idea is that, like, actually street-level revolutionaries often don't have that much impact. Um, although, you know, in real life, they obviously can. And when, like, she 
finds out about Vimes, who is he's masquerading as this character named Sergeant Keel, who's like a new police officer who takes over. She's like, finds him so oppressive. And you kind of, in his internal monologue, he's like, why couldn't I have, before I get married, like have people find me like strangely attractive? Like, <laughs> and the thing is like, this is like the first point in the series where you can understand why he's attractive because he isn't, Characters in Pratchett books hardly ever are attractive and when he's got someone who's meant to be sexy it's always played for laughs in like a really kind of stupid way. Um, but with with Vines, it's like for most of it, because you only see him from his own perspective, you're like, he's this unshaven, unwashed, like uncouth person who's got really bad personal habits and like basically is like morally good, but will spend 99% of his time running around in the dark arresting people and like not in a glamorous noir way. Whereas in this, it's like you can see that she's like come across this figure who's appeared out of nowhere and is suddenly like in control of everything and is has this like great leadership potential and like she's surrounded by people who are just not as smart as her and you can see why she finds him attractive and i i just yeah i find that i find that very appealing and also i think that's kind of sort of subtextually echoed with like veterinary in a really interesting way because for like the earlier books you can always tell that veterinary kind of has a certain respect for vines but he views absolutely everyone in the city as like below him because he knows that they're all no one can like see everything as well as he can because you've got like the different power differential you have like this young late teens early 20s guy who's in like the assassin's guild at this point so which is basically like oxford and cambridge but like for murder um <laughs> so, and he's like viewing this character like keel and he finds him really impressive and you can kind of see how along with the fact that like vines becomes his young self's mentor so he's like essentially hero worshiping himself as a middle-aged man you can kind of see how like veterinary has learned stuff from keel's leadership that he wouldn't have learned otherwise because at that point he's only ever viewed the city from like his perspective as an aristocrat and now he's like oh shit like someone who's like on the ground level as a sergeant can have this really big like social impact i i enjoy that but i enjoy my like little vines veterinary relationship there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i found him quite intriguing but there's not a ton of him in this book yeah he's more a background character which makes sense because as soon as you leave the present yeah he's less central <laughs> um so one of the other interesting things about this book, obviously perhaps the most interesting thing, is that it's obviously a crime novel in a technical sense, but it does not particularly bear any resemblance to crime fiction as we know it in a yeah. standard way. Um, it is about cops, but there's no mystery to be solved, except the mystery of how to get out of this situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of what he's doing is critiquing uh, the police while also simultaneously like venerating this one person yeah. and making kind of a case for like the existence of good cops. Uh, all of which I found pretty interesting because I do like good like mystery novels and like crime fiction if it's done well. I grew up watching Law and Order as many young Americans did. Um but uh, I hadn't really encountered anything exactly like this before, sort of tonally, which I thought was pretty, pretty intriguing. It's just not usual to have a book of this type have like commentary about yeah, like the police state. And I like never, <laughs> yeah, I really hadn't thought about it like until rereading this because when you come at these books like as a Discworld reader, you're obviously not really thinking like, oh, this one's crime fiction. And there's also like other books that are set 
in Ankh-Morpork, Pork, especially towards the end of his life, his books shifted away from being like really absurdist comedy, which the earlier ones were, into being like much more political. So like in the later books, there's a couple that are about like the formation of the post office, which are like really good. That's like so kind of indicative of the type of things he's interested in, because although like two or three of the watch books are about Vines pursuing like a specific criminal, one of them is basically about war in the Middle East. So like he goes to like the country of Klatch, which is a non-specifically Arab nation and it's kind of illustrating the like stupidity and racism of war and all of the people who are like fighting are these aristocrats who don't know anything about anything. But like with this one, you get like a really clear idea of how Pratchett thinks of the cops as a city utility, which doesn't tend to happen in most cop fiction because they're either very protagonist centric so it's all like here's like this hero in like a difficult system or like there's just no kind of consideration of the system at all because it's written by someone who's just like well obviously cops are the good guys uh, and like with this it's like they're like the trash collectors and he like literally starts off with the basic assumption that virtually every single one of them is at some level corrupt and like the ideal scenario that Vines is aiming for is a point where most of them are only slightly corrupt. <laughs> He's just like, it's fine for you to like get free donuts from your local diner, but you can't like threaten people. Over the course of the whole series, he's gone from being someone who is essentially like thoughtlessly racist because he just doesn't, like at this point in history, no one in Ankh-Morpork associates with people of like other fantasy species. Whereas by the time you get to the modern era, his like core command group includes like a troll and a dwarf and all like a werewolf and stuff and like his last thing that he's talking about before he travels and in, in like through time is he's like I'll never have a vampire on the police force and it's like you will eventually <laughs> but yeah like it's it's this very like unromantic view of the police and it's also like he has characters like in in the past it's like one of the kind of aspects of city corruption that's like the darkest is that there is this uh there's essentially like a torture chamber that's run by plainclothes police officers who are working for the evil patrician and they will just take people off the streets and like torture them and get them to admit that they're revolutionaries like even if they're not and it's like this horrifying situation but the whole point is that like all of these charmingly idiotic young policemen including young vines are complicit because they are the people who are running what's like referred to as the hurry up wagon where you just pick up people because they've broken curfew and then take them to cable street where they are almost certainly like tortured to death and it's this idea where it's like he's very sort of realistic about the way that normal people can just thoughtlessly play into really abusive systems. Yeah, I found that bit quite effective because it shows the sort of thoughtlessness of the people participating in the system. Like they just don't care, but aren't sort of consciously thinking about what they're doing. They're just like, well... This is how it goes. And then when they are actually confronted with the reality of what's happening in this horrible, like, torture chamber, are, like, really, really horrified, understandably, because it's awful. But before being sort of pushed up against it, had not made the effort to be like, what's actually going on here? Like, we're taking all these people to this place, and then no one ever emerges. Like, maybe we should... Which I think is very true to how people behave in those situations. Yeah. Like, it's just easier to not think about what is happening if it's uncomfortable, especially if you have this massive sort of powerful system that could make your life very difficult if you attempt to make trouble. Yeah. Um, and, but what the sort of interesting conundrum of this book, obviously, is that it revolves around, like, the one good man. 
in the system, yeah. right? Who then comes and is like, we're going to change everything. And obviously... And he like, can't. <laughs> like, yes. he literally, like, all he, he makes, like, he makes, like, a kind of... He makes, like, a social impact on his younger self. And that, like, he kind of, he becomes the mentor that he remembers from his childhood. The implication is that, like, the original mentor actually was the real John Keel, who had, like, the same effect. Um, but, like, he doesn't change stuff. And, like, kind of the idea of this book is the kind of circular futility, both of the fact that, like, his, he's trying not to change the timeline, but he's also trying to be a good person. And also, he's already aware that the revolution doesn't really work. And, like, I think... Is this the book where there's, like, a line where he's like, that's why they're called revolutions, because they just, like, keep coming around? Yeah. Yeah, which I don't know if that's a practicism or if it's just, like, a turn of phrase, but... I hadn't like, heard it before. Yeah, it but... may, yeah he's, he's got a lot of good lines, so I like to, I like to think that is actually a practicism. The city does change over time, but it's this very sort of big picture view where it's, like, Vimes has an impact, but, like... A lot of it is veterinary, but also a lot of it is just like the fact that the city is becoming more diverse, more things are being invented. So it's like there's never like this idea that like a heroic figure is going to come and save them. Because one of the earliest, in fact, it may like be the first book in Vimes's narrative, is the one that introduces um, Captain Carrot, who like I think you probably saw like really briefly at the beginning of this book. But like he arrives in the city and he's this like shining golden like superhero, beautiful and muscular and like has a good heart and he's like intrinsically heroic and really impressive and everyone immediately finds him really charming and he's this perfect moral figure and he obviously like can't function in like Ankh Pork society and the only reason he's alive is because like he's really physically strong because he can just be like well you shouldn't fight me and then he'll just like throw someone away <laughs> and it also turns out that he is like the true born king of Ankh Pork and he is like destined to become the king and basically the whole idea of his story is that he can't be king because like that's not going to solve absolutely anything at all and also he like can't exist in like a fairy tale context in like a quote unquote real world and he just ends up becoming Vimes' subordinate and it's always this really weird uncomfortable situation where Vimes is like I hate the monarchy and also you're clearly a better person than me but I need to like keep your goodness in check <laughs> because it's just none of this is going to function ever so he becomes like his second in command through the series and like never becomes any less naive <laughs> yeah that sounds about right based mm. on my experience of this one novel <laughs> uh, yeah I think that that's kind of the conundrum of the book in a different way is that the whole thematic point of it is that nothing ever changes mm. and it would be wrong based on his point to have a massive change in terms of everything being fixed and unsatisfying also as a resolution but the fact that you can sort of tell that nothing is going to change also makes reading it occasionally frustrating <laughs> because you're like well Okay. <laughs> yeah. I definitely don't have that experience. I'm just like, this is amazing and it's like one of the best project books. And obviously, like, listeners will know that I'm not like one of these people who's standing for darkness. I don't think like this book is better than the other project books because it's darker, because like the way he's telling the story is the same as the way he tells stories in other books. He's just pointing it at a more explicitly political direction instead of being like, I'm aiming all my satire at doing a book that makes fun of Phantom of the Opera. Also, part of the reason I like this is because I enjoy the time travel fix-it trope, which I think is also a trope that's quite difficult to do in a way that's, like, not wholly self-indulgent. And, like, I quite like fan fiction 
that is like, I think like the original Star Wars trilogy is one where there was like a lot of time travel fix-it fiction, a lot of it centering around rewinding and like just making Anakin and Padme's relationship work, which I haven't really read because I can't bring myself to care about that relationship. There's a lot of like Obi-Wan time travel and there's a lot of kind of Harry Potter fanfic that's about characters going back in the timeline and fixing stuff. And it's very like viscerally satisfying and you also get it quite a lot in like single episodes of sci-fi TV and it often that kind of satisfaction that works in fan fiction you can't really stretch out to a novel and I think this is like a rare example where it works because even though you're getting the satisfaction of having someone who's like experienced being really efficient and like knowing what's happening you know that like it's not got this wholly positive outcome where it's like well done you've like heroically saved everything which is kind of the way that like the fan fiction trope works but um it's more about him kind of coming to terms with the fact that he's like more successful and mature than he thinks he is, which I think is quite a like universal idea of like the way people kind of grow up and realize that they're actually like a functional adult. It's just that he's getting it at like age 50. <laughs> Cause like, he's like, he's still throughout like his whole life. He has like this growing sort of like internal rift to do with like his class identity where he's this very working class person who never fits in with his aristocratic surroundings as he gets promoted further and further. But at the same time, it's not like he can be like, oh, I'm just a random street kid anymore because he is actually in charge of everything. And as readers, we know that he's really good at his job and he has actually done all these really impressive things, but he's not fully internalized it until he reaches this point and like literally physically comes face to face with his younger self, realizes that his younger self is like an embarrassing, useless dweeb and tries to teach him some vague survival skills and also like realizes that he is a far better leader than anyone who was in charge of the city when he was young and that kind of gives him the freedom to actually go and be a dad when he gets back home yeah that's another thing that if you haven't read the other books it's like well (laughs) and i think what i found sort of slightly impeded my enjoyment was not that it was like dark because as you know I <laughs> no, love of course. Dark it was more just like on a technical plot level, mm. right? Like it's all very preordained, and so then his challenge in the book, which he generally speaking does very well because it is entertaining, mm-hmm. is to keep you engaged, even though it's all preordained, and that is a really hard task. And I think he mostly does a very good job, but on some level it is still kind of like, yeah, like, <laughs> okay. And I found it kind of interesting that there was not more like paradox stuff, which is normally what you get yes. with time travel fiction. And it was kind of interesting that he didn't do more of that, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but that's normally where a lot of the conflict comes from in stories like this, because it's like, oh my god, what might happen if whatever... Well, I I Um, can't remember what happens in his main time travel book, because I feel like he... He has, like, some kind of, like, his, like, philosophy of time travel kind of fits in with the generally sort of genre-savvy stupidity of a lot of Discworld books, wherein he he doesn't take it super seriously and like the people who are experts in time travel are just sort of giving it this very Doctor Who-ish like oh it's timey-wimey explanation for Vimes yeah but like one or two books before this in the series is the point where he introduces this essentially it's like a Buddhist religion that's about monks it's, it's like these monks that are like taking care of time and that's the one that I think deals with paradoxes because like the whole book is about time travel yeah and like the nature of time unfolding but I remember I don't think I was particularly into that one I was like it's fine yeah. I mean, I always liked that stuff mm. a lot. 
in various sci-fi things, but I also, like, I have read my fair share of fan fictions where everything is fixed, but I never loved that trope so much unless it was really well executed. Yeah, it's very much a taste thing, because, like, I really enjoy competence stuff, but, like, I'm aware that if I see a movie where it's just, like, here's a protagonist who's good at everything... Unless it's, like, an extraordinarily well-executed example. Like, I mean, Mission Impossible is obviously, like, great. Because it's, like, it's so purely just no thought whatsoever. But, like, perfect. Like, just illustration of someone being efficient and cool. I'm like, this is great. But, like, the vast majority of movies where there's, like, a cool, badass man who's good at everything. I'm like, fuck off. (laughs) But with fan fiction, I'm like, that's the mindset where, like, you're going into it wanting something that's pure id. And if you're the kind of person where, like, the time travel fix-it trope is one of the things that tickles your edge, you're like, sign me up! <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's very much, like, taste rather than, uh, yeah. Yes. Are you going to watch the new Doctor Who? Yeah. Girl Doctor Who. I really went off Doctor <laughs> Who and Moffat took over, as many people did. I, I mean, think. yeah, shocker. <laughs> yeah. But I, lo- I love the Russell T. Davies ones, yeah. um, as, again, many people did. But... I just feel like, you know, as a woman, it, it's my cultural duty yeah. to to at least try it out, and I would be really An thrilled if it were good. Interesting new writers and directors, yeah. Too. And you know, if it's not, then oh well. But I'll give it at least a few episodes. That's the kind of thing where, when well executed, they can do just the one-offs, and yeah. it's just so satisfying. <laughs> I mean, like, the, I, like, Doctor Who is so perfectly suited to not having, like, long-term plot lines. Yeah. And, like, also, like, Stephen Moffat was just terrible at long-term storytelling. Like, he can't do it because, like, you know, he needs to be someone who has a boss. And when he's the boss, he just has bad management skills. But anyway, that is that is something to, do, to never discuss in another podcast because we don't need to talk about him again. But we, we, we should do, like, a Doctor Who episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just thinking, like, kind of our final thoughts on this wonderful book. I feel like I've probably forgotten like dozens of things because I love this book so much, but um, did you find it funny? Yes. Good. I found it very, yeah. like, the humour <laughs> is very satisfying. Yeah. Um, as you say, very British, but not in a sort of like stereotypical British humour way. It's, yeah, it's very, well, I mean, Pratchett's like got a very specific personal sense of humour. Yes. That is like also, it's like a combination of that British humor and like kind of the Douglas Adams situation, but he's also like phenomenally well informed. One of the things that Pratchett fans say a lot is that you'll read the books often like as a kid and then you'll come back and each time you reread them, you'll understand more of the like historical allusions and like stupid puns and stuff. Cause like no one can ever pick up on that many puns. And there's so many puns in these books that I like still don't get or like someone will point it out to me and I'll be like, oh shit, that's a pun, you know? Um, and in this one, I think the one that I noticed this time around was the fact that the the City Watch's motto is Fabricatum Diem Punk, which is make my day punk in fake Latin. <laughs> Just like, oh, thanks. This is a great stupid joke from the fake Latin minds. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, the barricade stuff, I didn't think of Les Mis, I thought of, like, French history. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I mean, because it's like, it is, it's literally, because it's not, the barricade stuff is, like, more just straight up French and European history. Because it's all just, like, exactly what happens every time, which is, like, someone, like, accidentally fires a shot, and then, like, you know, it's all... And chaos. the the predictable (laughs) series of events follows, yeah. 
And I mean, his his humor is famous. Like I've seen many quotes on Tumblr or whatever. From you could, they're famous even out of context. Yeah. But it was interesting to read an actual book and see it all working together. Um, and I I did find it very funny. And it's sort of um, wry, but also not dry. If that makes any sense, like he's slightly zanier. Yeah. Than the again stereotypical like extremely dry British yeah. humor thing, but also... He's not cool. Right. <laughs> but there is that kind of sense of nothing is going to work out. <laughs> A lot of British culture has always had. <laughs> Which I appreciate. I could, you know, that's, yeah. that's generally my attitude also, so... <laughs> it's like, I just, like, the thing that kind of illustrated that best to me is, like, there was some... Like, there was some, like, Guardian columnist whose job was just to go to America and, like, live in America and be, like, the American correspondent on social life. And he just said that, like, the difference between when you're, like, hearing an anecdote at a party between America and Britain is in Britain, it'll be, like, some bloke who's telling an anecdote about how he, like, completely fucked up and made, made a mess of himself and, like, did something absurdly stupid and he's making fun of himself. And the equivalent type of middle-aged man anecdote in America would be someone, like, being really self-aggrandizing and showing about something they'd done that was funny. Yeah. That's true to my Which is also, like, how a lot of, like, sitcoms work. Because in, like, British sitcoms, the vast majority of them are about, like, dirtbags. And in America, the majority of sitcoms that are, like, mainstream hits are about people that you basically, like, are quite nice. And they've got, like, a moral at the end. And it's like, fuck off, scrubs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much true. (laughs) I agree. Uh, Which is why we both love Always Sunny in Philadelphia. (laughs) An episode will be forthcoming soon. Oh, I didn't know we were going to do it. Well, it's it's going to be back on. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think we should definitely do it. Find something to say about the ultimate dirtbag show. Yeah, I have binge watched all of it in the past few months. So I have many thoughts. Yeah, so um, do you have any further thoughts about this book? Or would you ever read another Discworld? Um, There are ones that are about women. Because this is, this is one of the ones which doesn't have any women in it. Yeah, women would, would help. I wasn't particularly bothered that there no. weren't any women, but that would, would be an incentive. Because yeah. when I was reading this one, I was like, I just want to make it clear that Terry Pratchett isn't sexist. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like also structurally, this one is like very explicitly about the battle days, which kind of plays into the fact that there aren't women. Um, yes. But like one of the, like, one of the ones that I remember... Being one that I think you might like is the Phantom of the Opera one, which is why I've mentioned it a couple of times. Because, yeah. like, the concept is um, it's a spin off of the books about witches, which are, they're all like little grannies that like live in a little Welsh village in the mountains, which is already like conceptually great because, like, he is literally one of the most celebrated fantasy authors. And he's writing like these really obnoxious old ladies who are dealing with community problems <laughs> and are like just really gross. And it's that is such a like a very rare depiction of female life where it's like their comedic characters who are old gross women. It's like amazing. But they have like a sequence of kids they're mentoring. So it's like you have like the maiden, the mother, and then the crone. And it's like mm-hmm. they have the mother and the crone are like the static characters. And they've got like new younger ones they're mentoring. And one of them is this woman named Agnes who is just like this very like sensible, overweight country lass who just really wants to be like a cool gothic witch, witch, but like can't because she just like, she's just too fundamentally sensible and like she doesn't have the right look. So this is the book where she essentially is like, I've got to just leave. So she moves to Ankh-Morpork and starts working in the opera house. 
Um, and the concept is that like she has like an amazing voice, but like does not have the right temperament to be involved in like the arts at all because she's just like I'm sensible. So she's in the middle of like the story of the Phantom of the Opera unfolds, and it's focusing around this like completely stupid idiot bimbo girl who's like the star of the <laughs> opera house and can't sing. So Agnes becomes like her voice and is the singer, um, like in um in Singing in the Rain. Yeah. And then at the same time is like in the midst of just like everyone just acting like a histrionic idiot while there's like phantom story and she's just like, I'm a real witch and this is all so fucking dumb. And it's just <laughs> so funny. And like, I read it around the same time that I was like, reading Phantom of the Opera as like a 13 year old and like loved the Phantom of the Opera so much because I'm a little goth teen at the same time. I was like, I know this is dumb, but I love it. <laughs> Yes, that sounds great. I would read that book. Yeah, that's called Masquerade, by the way, for listeners who are like, please name what the book is called. <laughs> that's it. So one is called Masquerade with a K. Um, but yeah, I think I think we're now done with our, our book club episode. Um, if you like this, please share it with your Terry Pratchett fan friends. Also, like, you can always support us on Patreon. We've got a couple of posts on there that are about this and we have, like, exclusive Patreon episodes and things as well. Um, so that's patreon like forward slash over invested and if you don't want to give us money which is completely reasonable because not everyone has money um please recommend us to your friends in general and uh kind of give us a positive review on itunes yes um and otherwise thank you as ever for listening you can find us at our website overinvestedpodcast.com on twitter at overinvestedpod or on tumblr at overinvestedpodcast thanks bye